Welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Oh, what a rush! And welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. I'm your host this week. I'm Derek Kernahan, and today we are discussing arguably one of the best tag teams ever: the Road Warriors, the Legion of Doom, Hawk and Animal. And we'll be discussing their time as a tag team, which lasted 31 years. Surprisingly, it's quite a a long time for a tag team between 1983 and 2014 as well. Um, now, before I introduce my panel, we're going to help you go down a bit of memory lane. You can find us on all good social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, YouTube, and maybe soon Bebo, which is coming back as well, at Suplex Retweet as well. So, now the panel. I have never met four guys who particularly who deserve a doomsday device as much as these four guys as well. So just to introduce them, we have Scott McLeod. Scott, how you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I don't know if I particularly deserve a doomsday device, I think. Yes, uh, you have a lot doomsday devices. Yes, we have Chris Murray. Chris, how you doing, buddy? Hey man, delighted to be here. I stayed up half the night. What? Doom matches. Um, I wish that we had worn face paint for this. Today I am an honorary road warrior, Chris. Yes. <laughs> I wish I'd heard that. I could have done a mullet as well. I wish I'd heard that I could have done that today. <laughs> um, we have uh, Gary. Gary, how you doing? Hey there, guys. Chris, we're on podcast. Nobody else knows that we're not wearing face paint. Eggs are. See, I should have kept <laughs> up the charade. You've ruined it. It really shouldn't Bebo be called Bebo 2000 since it's been relaunched. Uh, yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. And we also have a guy who's all oh, what a rush is used to describe his sex life. It's Stephen Wilson. Ah, yes, 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 absolutely. You know. Uh, <laughs> very appropriate. Yeah, you've came to me last. I feel like I'm like the Heidenreich of this uh, Legion of Doom rundown here. <laughs> you definitely are, Stephen. If there's one guy who is it, it's you, buddy. How are you anyway? You alright? I'm good, thanks. Good. Good, good man, good man. So we're going to take a look back at um, the the Road Warriors, Legion of Doom sort of era. We're going to have a quick chat about before they sort of been into WWF at the time. So we're going to discuss a few eras, WWF, WCW, back to WWF, and then a New Age um, LOD as well. So just before that, um, just a bit of introduction and then we'll have a bit of discussion. On, um, on them as well. Now, Hawk and Animal were known for their um, aggressive, um, impressive physiques that they had as well, which was a bit different from any other wrestlers that they had. I mean, they were, they were massive. When you watch the videos back at some of the early stages stuff, they were so much bigger than um, some of the other wrestlers that were, some of the wrestlers that were about at that time. Um, their, their fierce face paint and their spike armor was inspired by the, the Mad Max films. In particular, Mad Max 2, where he was called the Road Warrior in it as well. Um, they were the first wrestlers as well to sort of bring a movie theme into the wrestling, which paved way for many others to follow as well that we're seeing, that we're seeing now um, with the New Day doing stuff as well. Gargano's sort of attired as well. He's been very recently sort of some movie influences in it as well, which is, you know, it's quite a cutting edge for the time when you're thinking about the, the early 80s, you know, how they were doing their, how they were doing their business. Um, well. They were also one of the first um, wrestlers to use a tag a, a tag them manoeuvre for a finisher as well in the Doomsday device, which they used throughout their career and also when they were wrestling with, with other partners as well. 
now they they featured in a number of different wrestling companies as well. They they performed and where they started in the Georgia um, Championship as well. They went to the American Wrestling Association, the National Wrestling Alliance, um, All Japan as well, where they were massive in All Japan. Scott, you're a big All Japan, you're a big Japan wrestling fan. Um, LD are huge over there, aren't they? You're not as big a fan as David Campbell, it has to be said. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just a shame he, he's not here. He would have filled you and you'd give you their entire match with all the star ratings that big Davy Meltzer probably gave them. But yeah, yeah, they kept going uh, like back and forth from Japan like throughout their career. And yeah. like, I think just that big intimidating look is what kind of the Japanese audience really enjoy because they like like bringing over the big intimidating, especially like gaijin wrestlers like coming in and looking yeah. intimidating, really running roughshod everywhere. I think the road warrior very much suited that look at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gary, when, when when we first when we used to watch it back in the early nineties, and you seen the LOD, just how impressive they were. You know, they had the you know they had their American football um, suit on, spikes on it. They had their face paint. Just how intimidating, you know, and awesome were they? It was the, the total package helped make them stand out. And the WWF at that time as well, it was full of larger than life characters and you know the, it was the combination of things that made them stand out yes they were big yes they had weird hairdos they had the face paint they had the spikes which was really unique the colors um the music as was something i thought that really made them stand out it was just a really great really great tune as well and one of those tunes the second you heard it and we've seen it all throughout their career the second you heard it, you knew who it was, and folk popped near enough every single time for it. I just thought their whole, their whole package, you know, one doesn't. I, I don't think one works without the other, and all these things together made them, made them really special. Chris, Chris, what's your early thoughts on, you know, early stage LOD or Road Warriors as they were known back then? So I've I've mentioned this on the show before, but a lot of wrestlers that I heard of for the first time from before when I was actually started watching like 2000-2001 a lot of the older wrestlers that I heard of for the first time came from Legends of Wrestling on the Playstation 2 and the Road Warriors were on the cover of that and I remember just being like who are these guys looking up some of the stuff they'd done in the past and just being like this is amazing and then I think that was literally around the time that they went through one of their final incarnations involving Heidenreich and um, yeah, since since I first discovered them, I've gone back and watched loads of stuff. I've watched pretty much all of their uh, 90s WWF run of matches. I've watched a lot of their WCW and uh, JCP stuff as well. They're a fascinating team to watch. Um, Gary was just talking about their music there. Their like, WWF music was good, but then I didn't realize until watching some of their stuff last night that before that they would come out to Iron Man the the Joe Coffey music, if you will, and um, yeah, it's yeah. They they were just and to borrow a term from Lex, they are the total package. They just have everything going for them. Yeah, I totally, hundred percent agree with that. There, Stevie. Um, in terms of the you know the Road Warriors, they were initially called the Road Warriors, and you know going all the way up until they got they went to WWF, and Vince didn't want any more Warriors gimmicks that they had on it so they changed their names to LOD. Do you think that's quite significant um, in the build up that they were able to still use like LOD um, 
the Legion of Doom was part of a stable in the Georgia Wrestling Alliance, which was with um, um, they did a few guys in it as well. Do you think that's very important? How they were still keep their original name? They were still called Road Warrior Hawk and Road Warrior Animal, even though they were the Legion of Doom. Yeah, because I think uh, to a lot of people that you know the wrestling outside the WWE to a lot of people doesn't exist in some degree. They don't really they're not as familiar with it. So to kind of have that link to the previous stuff it would allow people to kind of see see the old stuff even though it was you know the early 90s we didn't have internet at that particular point in time so it be a, wouldn't be as easy to go look up their old stuff but it was it was good that they got to go back to the legion of doom name as well because as you said Derek, that was the original stable of it i mean they took it from uh the super friends cartoon i believe in the late 70s yeah. uh, early 80s which is amazing events will happily go up against a cartoon that's got superman and batman in it but you'll lose a lawsuit to the worldwide uh, to the animal fund about the name of the company that he's ran for <laughs> so many odd years but hey ho but the uh, legion of doom are a class stable and my first introduction to him similar to chris was the heidenreich stuff and at the time i thought the heidenreich stuff was no bad then looking back on i realized no it wasn't it was sucked uh <laughs> so <laughs> got gone back and looked at the two guys they're just they were physically dominating they would they were so stiff but it worked so well and i think without throughout wrestling history there's not many tag teams that could push their way regularly above the, the mid-card. And I think that's what you always found with LOD. They were always that team that were up there feuding with all the big guys or the main guys on the roster, which was testament to how good a team they were. I think this is one of the things that is, you know, like the roster that they had and some of the guys that they came up against. We'll discuss these guys in a wee bit, obviously, with some of the, the things that you're going to discuss. But that was proper old school. 90s tag team wrestling which is what one of my favorite things to do but going back to the the georgia um the georgia uh, championship wrestling which were which were part of the stable consisted of Lely, who was the manager we knew that but also jake snake was in that as well how cool would that have been to see them three as part of a part of a pretty cool stable guys yeah it'd be awesome the, the, the three letter moniker lod ddt <laughs> yes jake was just exceptional in you know early 90s wwf he was one of those guys that just could come through the character the camera and when he was a heel he was so creepy and dastardly it was just phenomenal i, I always liked paul ellering i was disappointed when he um when aop came on to monday night raw a couple of years ago that he wasn't part of the package i thought he added something to them um, but yeah, I mean, as a stable, it, it was good, and it was good, interesting back in these, you know, in the early nineties, WWF, when you had the Survivor Series teams, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit, and you got a little chance to see some of these things, you know, um, these team up. And to Stephen's point, the LOD were not, out, you know, they closed a couple of the shows, and they were not out of place in the main events. Which today, if you were to think, well, you know, these these tag teams are going to join in with these random guys and main event Survivor Series, you'd get laughed at the building. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. It'd also be interesting yeah. to see. So it would be interesting to see Jake Roberts and LD what that would have looked like, especially when they were cutting promos, because these are vastly different promos. You know, LD are all like in your face shouting, yeah. that, whereas Jake Roberts was always very like soft spoken. Yeah. And so there'll be a weird contrast to see 
just do Robert Downey's classic like zoom right in, do the soft spoon, you know, and and then just the uh, the, the classic eighties cocaine promo. I think I've heard it called. Just play all day, like, well, let me tell you that story. <laughs> There was, there, was another, something mean gene. there was there was another <laughs> guy on the stable as well. There was a guy called the the spoiler in it as well. Who I'll be honest with you, I'd never heard of before looking back in this. But see if you look back in this guy, he's got quite a, an influence on wrestling as well. I mean, he was famously the guy that first did the rock walk along the top rope that the Undertaker used that he actually gave yeah. to the Undertaker apparently, which is something he wrestled in. He was a masked wrestler that wrestled in Madison Square Garden maskless in the main event against uh, Pedro Morales one day as well so it, it, it's even at an early stage they were put in with all these guys that had some influence on it King Kong Bundy was in there as well you know maybe not the best wrestler in the world but everybody knew who he was so oh, King Kong Bundy we need to have him as a Christmas special one here Stephen I was listening to the Spectres podcast and they do the big cat any lads impression of Bundy saying Bundy every time you wrestle you're stealing money <laughs> So that's just a sort of brief intro in the LOD. I just how how like um, what uh, you said as well was quite important as well. Everybody sort of simulates simulates that you know wrestling starts at WWF, but it it certainly doesn't. Um, And there was a number of number of places these guys have been and made a massive name for themselves. So we're going to start pretty much a discussion. Um, we're going to start with Gary. Gary, do you want to tell us what you're going to discuss and everything about it? Yeah, I'm going to cover the period from their first WWF run from 1990 to 1992. And you're quite right, Derek, to say um, you know there's a long story history for the the Road Warriors before they arrived in WWF. They claim they left WCW because they had heat with Jim Hurd. Uh, but when you look back over their career, you know, they did two years in Georgia, two years at the AWA, um, four year, five years in Japan, four years in Jim Crop Promotions, WCW. There's a wee bit of a pattern that I think we'll see emerge through the LOD's career. And, you know, sometimes, you know, other, it's easier to blame other people for the followers, but sometimes you do have to uh, reflect that actually maybe the fault sits within uh, yourself and I think um, you know they put a lot of that blame onto Hawk but I'm sure there's plenty of it to go around so yeah the guys touched on you know they came into w, came into WWF name machines which wasn't unusual at the time and they immediately went into feud with Demolition and there was lots of chat at the time that Demolition were an imitation of the Legion of Doom but they weren't to me because I had no idea who the Legion of Doom were. I grew up watching Demolition, uh, so that this narrative is all oh, their uh, Legion of Doom wannabes. I was like, no, no, they're not, <laughs> no, they're not. Um, but you know, on paper, this is a feud, Demolition and the Legion of Doom, that you think, oh yes, yeah, this is going to be this is going to be special. Unfortunately, it just I don't think it worked. And at that time, Demolition were moving into this three-man group um, because of Axe's um, deterioration in terms of health. So Crush was brought into the group and they were wrestling under the, the three-bird rule, but more often than not, it was Smash and Crush that wrestled and Axe was more of the manager. 
at the time and how ironic that we'll talk later on about similar thing happening to to the legion of doom with a third wheel being brought in it just to me that you know demolition were already on the downward slide and we never got the two of them i think coming together their feud was i also think the feud you know left a little bit to be desired we never really got a proper blow off to it as far as i was concerned so which of them cost them the titles at SummerSlam 1990 and they then wrestled in a six man at saturday night's main event where the other person in the match was the wwf champion the ultimate warrior um so again you know big big spotlight for them there and at survivor series they went on again to form like a team to take on Demolition. It was the Demolition and Mr. Perfect against the team named the Warriors, which were the LOD, Texas Tornado and the Ultimate Warrior. Which again, you know, on paper, what a what a team <laughs> there. The LOD were both in the ninety one Rumble and wrestled at WrestleMania seven in a squash match over Power and Glory which uh, lasts less than a minute. If you ever, you know, watch this back, first look how terrible Hercules was. It, the match was on for a minute. He he got, th- got thrown outside the ring. I think and uh, Hawks fighting with him outside the ring. There's a pretty cool spot where they throw Paul Roma into the turnbuckles and he sort of staggers out backwards and they duck down, he, you know, Hawks, uh, no, Animal, sorry, dips down uh, to put his head between his legs and lifts him up from behind, turns him round. For the Doomsday device, it was pretty cool set up for it. Uh, but Her- uh, Hawk uh, hits Hercules a couple of times with some clubbing forearms outside the ring. They jump back and get him up, and at this time Hercules is slowly climbing up onto the ring ropes. They didn't even have to knock him off. <laughs> he was moving so slow, it was pretty awful in his part. Um, but a squash match um, at uh, WrestleMania Seven. And then I think we get to probably why I would consider probably one of their best matches of this first run in WWF. It's the SummerSlam 1981, which is probably one of my all-time favourite pay-per-views because it's just stacked full of great matches. You've got Bret Hart winning the Intercontinental title that night. We've got DiBiase losing the Million Dollar title to Virgil. And match made in heaven, match made in hell. Um, but the the jailhouse match with the boss man in the bounty, which was great fun. But mm. this this match only lasted, I think, eight minutes. Uh, it was quite physical. Uh, it was in Madison Square Garden, and at that time when they did shows at Madison Square Garden, they used to do this really cool shot with the camera, like kind of right at the back of the stands. So it looked like the arena was enormous. I mean, Madison Square Garden uh, holds what twenty thousand people, so it's not anywhere near the biggest arena playing but they did this shot so i always thought it was this huge sprawling arena as a kid growing up watching it um animal says uh, <laughs> that this was probably the highlight of their career winning the title that night you can see when they celebrate actually how much it means to them they're jumping about high-fiving one another it's a, a special match for them we then come um the other sort of big moment so after this they ended up being in the last match i'm not going to call it the main event but it was the last match of survivor series 91 which was a six-man elimination match with the big boss man against the irs and the natural disasters it should have included macho man and jake snake 
Um, but they, uh, this was when the snake incident happened, so they were taken out of the match and wrestled at Tuesday in Texas. But this is the reason I went through all of that is we're now think kind of a year and a half into the run with WWF and. In terms of big shows, you know, you've got an appear- cameo appearance at SummerSlam. Uh, you've got the Survivor Series match. You've got them in the Royal Rumble. They've got them a one-minute match at Mania, a big spot at SummerSlam, and then another Survivor Series match. You know, that's kind of the body of the work uh, the main points there. They then sort of lose the title after. So at Survivor Series, it looks like we're setting up for LOD versus the Natural Disasters or Quake and Typhoon. But then along the way, they lose the title quite quietly to Money Inc. Um, and then go on a brief hi- hiatus. And the natural disasters end up having a face turn here and go on a feud with Money Inc. We uh, don't see them again until WrestleMania 8 when they appear with their new manager, Paul Ellering, for a promo. And then what follows is a series of uh, vignettes that introduce Rocco the Puppet. Uh, from their childhood, growing up in the mean streets of Chicago, because uh, you know everybody walks around with a ventriloquist dummy. Then uh, in the eighties, and yeah, Animal says in the documentary, it was kind of like it was an effort to soften them up. They they hated it. It was stupid. The so not much happens. I don't think until we get to SummerSlam '91 in Wembley, um, and they get one of the biggest pops ever. They come to the ring with their sort of He-Man style shoulder pads. This time they were gold, like with Skeletor. It takes the power of Grayskull. Uh, so they come to the ring with a gold gear on, but what's and on these Harleys, but what looks so stupid is Rocco is strapped to the front of Paul Ellering's bike, and Bobby Heenan says in commentary, look, the dummy is riding the Harley. <laughs> so, I mean, they have uh, an amazing pop, but unfortunately that night, uh, Hawk goes out on the town, gets absolutely smashed, misses his flight home, and then that is pretty much then finished in WWF. Animal goes on and uh, can finishes off his commitments by pulling in some randoms into the matches he has. But what surprised me, Derek? I think one of them was Crush, wasn't it? One of the guys that they pulled in uh, to help out? That's right. What surprised me so much about this when I look back on it is my memory was that this was a much longer run with much more stuff in it. I mean, it's not a bad run by any sh- shape and form, but they have, you know, one championship run which lasts less than six months, can't remember exactly. Um, you know, limited number of high spot matches. But I think it's just something, a testament to the strength of the characters and the strength of the team and just how loved they were. I think most folk look back in this period and probably, like, if anything like me, were probably surprised at actually the lack of depth within it and also just how short it actually was. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Stephen, the, the, should we demolition? That sounds like my one of my ultimate bookings ever would be LOD versus demolition. And like Gary said, it sort of fell massively short for a number of different reasons. Do you think what, what, what would if, if you heard that in paper, you know, LOD versus demolition? It just sounds awesome, and unfortunately, it wasn't. Aye, it's one of those ones you, you get it so much in wrestling that 
there's loads of stuff that sounds good on paper, but when they present it to you in the middle of the ring, it just sometimes fails to meet your expectations. I mean, the, to me, the polar opposite end of the spectrum is Shield versus Wyatt's. I mean, that was always in your head. You thought that's going to be amazing. And when they did it, it was amazing. But uh, <clears throat> I think there was a lot of factors in this one. There was the fact that Demolition, I think at this point, as Gary mentioned, Axe was in, uh, coming to the end of his career. They brought in the third man, who didn't really click the same way, I think. it. When I look back at matches, I don't think uh, the, the third man clicked as much. So you bring in LOD as the first feud, and it's like, uh, you, you, these guys have been here for three years. They're trying to be they're better than you, essentially. But they're not, in a way, because the guy that was great is not there anymore. So if maybe if you think, if Vincent maybe swallowed his pride a wee bit earlier and thought, I can bring these guys in very early on at the demolitions run, it'd be great. But it didn't, yeah. and that's probably why it failed. Yeah. Chris, the other one about, like Stephen mentioned there, Vince swallowing his pride was the fact that he didn't want them to be called the Road Warriors, they wanted, so they changed their name LED, yet he puts them in the Survivor Series match called, and their team is called the Warriors with the Ultimate Warrior and the Texas Tornado Kerry One Eric, who was also called the Warrior as well. That's quite actually a typical Vince for you, isn't it? There, yeah, and like, so there's some chat that they were called. They were referred to Legion of Doom back in the very early days, but you can tell that Vince wanted to do the thing that he still does to this day, and that is he wants to have his own brand for absolutely everyone. And he was—it's mental to think that he was even doing it back then. But yeah, like the demolition stuff, a lot of it, I'm sure, must have been to do with the fact that he doesn't want another guy's guys going over his guys because demolition were his guys regardless of whether or not that they were invented to be a cheap ripoff of the legion of doom and um, he would never let that happen and and the other side of the coin why i think this might not have worked is well when we've watched legion of doom matches throughout 1990 and 1991 they're facing guys that they can throw about like it well it doesn't work perfectly for power and glory because i know that they were kind of big guys as well but for most of this run it was guys that they could you know ragdoll a wee bit but that was also demolitions gimmick they could ragdoll folk as well so when you get two teams like that together sometimes it, it just doesn't really click it's like you know braun Strowman versus big show braun Strowman versus brock lesnar these matches get very old very quickly because it's two styles that are almost too similar maybe yeah. yeah, we did a lot of matches against jobbers, and uh, that day, you know, wrestling talent, superstars of wrestling, very rarely did two sort of main card talent, regardless of the level they were at, actually come up against one another. So you're absolutely right, both of those teams were ripping apart all these jobbers to look like twigs compared to them. <laughs> You know, one of the things as well, obviously, bring back to earlier, which was which was amazing. seeing stuff like, that. however, like Gary mentioned, Scott bringing back, bringing them with Rocco the Puppet was a massive letdown and a massive logo. In my opinion, do you? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's like the main tales are like there are even segments from like TV tapings that were so negative received with Rocco, they were so bad that they edited them out before they made it to TV. Uh, like you think. Vince probably saw a big marketing opportunity with LD. Like you see fans, all the kids with these like big rubber versions of like the shoulder pads. So like Vince always yeah. like to see what kind of what can he do with the guys marketing wise. So he saw an opportunity with them. I think maybe another reason they didn't do the thing with demolition is maybe they thought uh, if they put them in a prolonged program, even fans like I said who didn't 
uh, see the similarities or didn't know who the Road Warriors were originally, would suddenly start to see some similarities between the two teams and maybe start to think that they were a bit of a rip-off. And what's also yeah. weird is that they also didn't want to put them with the Heart Foundation when they probably should have, even though the Heart Foundation were still pretty hot, because like they were, didn't want to do like face v face as a thing. So like the Nasty Boys had to come in at WrestleMania, win the titles so that the Road Warriors could win them off them. And it's weird because like the tag division then is still pretty static. It's back when they kind of still cared about tag wrestling in WF. And like you're bringing them in, and yet two of your top teams immediately you don't want to put them against. So you're taking yeah. away two big dream matches off the table. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you. Now, look, like what Gary said there, just one championship run during that first spell with the WWF. Surprised by that, guys? Uh, Stephen? Yeah, I thought they could have. I thought they might have won a, had won a couple, looking back on it, but, you know, as, I was the same as Gary, I thought the, the WWF run was longer than two years. Yeah. From memory. It, I think it shows you, Chris, as well, just how popular they were, that even though they only had one championship run, just how, like, like, like we said earlier on, when the music went on, the pop that they got as well, it's quite surprising, considering, you know, how over they were that they did only have one championship run. And, and and this also suffers from the fact that in the golden era of the WWF, not a lot of people had championship runs. Like, Hogan had the main belt a lot of the time, the tag team division, you know, demolition around this time. Did they not hold it for a year and a half or something like that? So, like, it was difficult to get runs. Like, having a, fa- I think it's five months between August and January. Yeah, five months between August and January is like actually a pretty decent run at the time because it was very very difficult to hold championships at the time. People that have held held uh, championships once, but you still remember quite vividly. Like look at the Warrior, look at Roddy Piper. These are all championship reigns that come to memory quite quickly. But yeah, yeah, like I think we're all right. The reason that this gets remembered so fondly, despite being so short, is the fact that there was actually they managed to cover quite a lot in a short period of time and the fact that the way that wrestling worked at the time there wasn't a lot in between the big four pay-per-views there wasn't a lot of build-up it's not like now where <laughs> there's eight matches that they have to wrestle in between every single pay-per-view the guys probably worked about one or two serious matches between each of the big four yeah Gary final, finally with you in terms of the the, the first the first time um, how would you how would you describe it in a few words? Um, I think it's probably memorable is the word I would use because the high spots within it we still remember and it, it, I mean, it surprised me looking back on it just how short it was but it was it was very memorable I mean they made such an impression in that time and they were just loved they were so so popular and yeah um so I, I, when i was talking back on it i hope it didn't come across like i've been critical of of that run because i think um i just it was you know the way legends built in your mind um i just thought that there was more to the story I and mean, it was it was a great they made such an impact, such an impression. You know, huge credit to them. Um, I just thought there was more to it because I, my memory had built in such a way. That, but yeah, what an impression they make! I think most teams, most tag teams now would would give 
their all to to get that sort of run that they had. It was quite it was quite exceptional. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's a good to describe it. Um, Gary. Um, now we're going on to the next chapter of the W uh, the LOD's career. And Chris, you're going to have a chat about that, aren't you, mate? Yeah. So we're going to do what every good television. T, uh, television trope happens these days and that is we're going to do a bit of a prequel because you know Derek we had to start with the WWF that's where everybody knows them from I think a lot of our listeners will know them from those two years but I think that the first matches of uh, the Legion of Doom that I properly watched were in WCW in 1996 I wasn't watching them at the time I mean I watched them back about 10 years after that but then more recently I discovered that they had a whole period in JCP just before this. And I thought I'll take you through some of those if that's all right. Back then. So we'll we'll do we'll do a prequel, we'll do a lost, and we'll go back to nineteen eighty-six. And this is when they joined what I think at the time was JCP. They were brought in pretty strongly, and I, I mean I'm sure we mentioned at the top of the show that when they started out in JC and GCW and the AWA, they were hot as hell like they went to the top of the card very very quickly and basically left to head to JP because they were getting more money and I can't blame them I'd do the same thing um, they started out in their 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 very first start in JCP by winning the inaugural Jim Crockett Senior Memorial Cup Tag Team Tournament which at the time was this massive massive deal I think it would go on for a good few years after this they beat Ron Garvin and Magnum TA in the finals who I can't remember if it had happened at this point but both were NWA slash WCW champions around this period of time um, they, the, the thing that I noticed about the Road Warriors run around this time was that they didn't have to have belts and we've spoken about this a bit in the WWF is that they, they weren't going for the tag belts all the time because their characters were bigger than those belts and they didn't need to have those belts to to sort of prop them up as wrestlers. It's, it's a lot like when we mentioned Jake the Snake earlier. Jake the Snake never won any belts and that's because his character didn't require belts. It was good enough without them. So later on that year, they they well they did they won a sort of um, they won a sort of forgotten belt. They won the NWA World Six Man Tag Team Titles alongside Dusty Rhodes. This was huge at the time because they beat the Russians, who were major heels uh, in the company at this point. They would win them a couple of times, but then they would just quietly be retired when they realised that they were nonsense. The the first big thing that I wanted to talk about from this era was. Starcade 86, which I watched back last night. Now, it's a match that lasts about three minutes, but this Starcade was called the Skywalkers, and they weren't capitalizing on, on the success of Star Wars at the time. It was actually because this pay-per-view featured a scaffold match. It was them against the Midnight Express. It was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. <laughs> They're literally on this 25-foot bit of wood. <laughs> <laughs> just walking about like not really wrestling I mean how could you at that height and the objective of the match is just to chuck each other off of it they won over the Midnight Express but the highlight of this match was when <laughs> Paul Ellering chases Jim Cornette up the scaffold and then off the scaffold um, Jim Cornette tries to fall 
like a wrestler off of the scaffold and ends up exploding his knees like tearing his ACLs in both knees because he falls so stupidly um, but yeah it was just a brilliant like, like you can watch clips of it on the WWE's YouTube channel it is amazing <laughs> they um, when we get to 1987 this is where things get really good and this is where the Road Warriors made their name and it wasn't for winning belts it wasn't for um, something that they did in particular but it's because they took part and the inaugural war games. Now this just completely okay. left my this completely <laughs> okay. left my mind that even happened. My first war games that I remember is like ninety five or six when it was like Hogan um against the Dungeon of Doom. I completely forgot that there was actual brutal war games matches happening at the end of the eighties. The war games match was invented so that they could get all four horsemen in the ring at one time which is a great gimmick i can't remember who it was that actually invented the match but it was a great idea so it kicks off in july 1987 on just a house show which is just mad to even think it was the great american bash tour hasn't quite made it to pay-per-view stage just yet road warriors nikita koloff dusty Rhodes, and paul ellering all took on the four horsemen and their manager jj dillon the second match they had the war machine standing in for JJ Dillon, who turns out was the boss man. That would be a good match to watch if it exists. Um, so the Legion of Doom and friends won both matches before later that year in August, they won another War Games match, this time teaming with their old foe Ron Garvin and Dusty Rhodes and Nikita Koloff to defeat the Horsemen again. Most of the time JJ Dillon's in these matches, but he's, he's not really doing very much. <laughs> Um, the war games continued into 88, teaming with Dusty, Lex and Paul Ellering to defeat the Horsemen again before they roll in to the end of the year, winning their second NWA World Six-Man Tag Team title. Um, I think around this time they were tagging with Dusty Rhodes and then they swapped the belt to some other guy that they were tagging with. But as I said, this, uh, this title run basically meant nothing. It basically just disappeared after that. Finally, in October 1988, the year before I was born, they finally won the NWA World Tag Team Championship from the Midnight Express. It was a four-minute squash match, absolutely done them. And uh, they finally held up the tag belts that they had, you know, basically earned for, I don't know, about five years at this point, and probably winning one of the most prominent tag belts in the world at this point. They would hold them until April of the following year when they lost to the Varsity Club. Have you guys ever seen this tag team? This was uh, Dr. Death, Steve Williams and IRS Mike Rotunda, but they were dressed up like college jocks. Oh God, I forgot. I can't imagine Dr. Death. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to portray like a 21 year old. Nah not happening but yeah they 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 lost them in april 1989 at clash of the champions six and obviously because of a screwy finish teddy long uh, gave them a fast count which led to the the belts being lost and this is the thing teddy long got sacked as a referee because of this but there wasn't any rematch that was just the end of their run with the tag belts so um in july 1989 they went back to war games this time on pay-per-view this time on a pay-per-view which i watched last night the 1989 great american bash bash pay-per-view um the 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 first great american bash pay-per-view and this time around they teamed with the midnight express and steve williams 
Um, Midnight Express being Stanline and Bobby Eaton, I think, at this time. They took on and defeated the Freebirds and the Simone SWAT team, featuring um, Samu and Rikishi, which was amazing. I was like, oh my God, he's so young. Um, <laughs> they had a rematch that August on a house show. But what this meant was, when they won the August rematch, at this point, the Road Warriors were six for six in war games matches. Now, if anyone's listened to this, or any of you guys want to, go away and watch this war games match at the first Great American Bash pay-per-view in 1989. I loved it. The the hype, the constant suspense of waiting for the guys to come in. Obviously, the... <laughs> um, the uh, Legion of Dune Road Warriors they came in last in the War Games match crowd go insane they just start absolutely destroying everyone and then I think eventually Animal wins the match with a sort of reverse neck breaker it's like a total nonsense move but because War Games had to finish on a submission um, it was just a great way to end and um, the, the, they had a really good feud with the Freebirds around this time I watched a couple of it and it was really really cool their time was almost at the end in JCP. They would have their last pay-per-view appearance in May 1990 when they teamed with um, Norman the Lunatic to defeat Bam Bam Bigelow, Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan. That was at Capital Combat. You're, you're both, or all four of you are thinking, where have I heard that name before? That was that awful WCW pay-per-view which featured Robocop. If you remember him <laughs> saving Sting from the cage, there, there was a uh, there was some Legion of Doom matches on there. And then you know in June 1990, it was finally all over. They left the company because they were having a dispute with Jim Herd, much like Ric Flair would have a dispute with Jim Herd. So um, I, I fully pin this on Jim and <laughs> not the Road Warriors that they, they left at this point. So those, um, those five years, four years, five years, I think it was, were a really interesting time. It was a lot like what happened in the WWF. They had a lot of things going on in a really short space of time and some really memorable matches. Do you know who Norman the Lunatic actually who he was in WWF? Um, my only guess would be Norman Smiley. No, it was the Bastion Booger. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> that is not who I thought that would be. <laughs> oh, he was disgusting. <laughs> yeah, some of those clips from the early Monday Night Raws. Well. Uh, nasty, nasty. But, so that. that that takes us nicely up to the WWF run, which we've handily covered. Now, I really fondly remembered the WCW on Nitro run in 1996. I thought this went on for like a year or something like that, but I looked it up. They were signed for six months. <laughs> So you thought that you remembered WWF being longer. I thought this was way longer. They were actually on TV between January and April, and that was it. But nevertheless, we'll take you through it as it's one of my fondest memories of this period of time. Um, they actually were signed in October 1995, somewhere around October 1995, when uh, Animal was still out with a back injury. This back injury happened sometime between when they disappeared on their bender after SummerSlam in 92 and um, their attempted comeback in 1995. So Hawk fought on WCW solo for a while while Animal was still recovering. Uh, Halloween Havoc, the one with the Yeti, 
in October 95, he lost to Kurosawa, which is basically the biggest highlight of Kurosawa's entire career. <laughs> Finally, in January 1996, they returned to WCW. I think they come out during a promo from Sting and Lex Luger, who are the tag team champions at that point, and they basically just go, hang on, we're the Road Warriors. You have to give us a tag title shot because we've asked for it. And Sting and Luger are, right, are like, yeah, okay, fair enough, yeah. So on Nitro, on the 5th of February, they finally get their tag title match against Sting and Luger. But as you know, um, the around Nitro in 1996, it was all it was all build up and no payoff with all of these matches. Uh, they lost to Sting and Luger because of some Lex Luger cheating. Immediately, LOD being the massive faces that they are, demanded a rematch at Super Brawl, which was six days later. They fought Sting and Luger to a double DQ. So you're thinking, oh yes, this is uh, building up nicely to an eventual payoff match where they get the tag team titles. But no, it never really comes. Basically, the NWO turn up and ruin everything. <laughs> they ended up finishing out this run. They brawled a bit with the Steiners for a sort of we're the best tag team type thing, which never really got any payoff. They had some more matches with the Nasty Boys after having some good ones in the 90s with, um, with them in the WWF. But that was it. This run was really, really short-lived. They were done on Nitro by April, had some matches on the B-shows before they headed over to Japan. So yes, this four months worth of matches I remember fondly, but yeah, not very long at all. No. No, that's that, that's interesting as well. Like another one that's had such a short period, a short, short, um, short stint. Stephen, would you like to see a scaffolding match live in the flesh? I mean, I'd be interested, but I don't. I'd be <laughs> one of those ones you'd be kind of squeamish at the bottom, going, oh, oh no, oh no, oh no. <laughs> uh, I mean, the Midnight Express as well. I mean. They're not really a scaffolding match. I mean, see if they had them against <laughs> somebody like the Dudleys or the or the, or the Nasty Boys or something. You're like, ah, it makes sense. But the Midnight Express, no. Pure technical ta- uh, mat wrestling NWA. Midnight <laughs> yes. Express. Names Fio is Kendall in Hell and Punjabi uh, Prison. So maybe a good idea on paper, but the execution of it is not. <laughs> exactly. The bit I, see, I, I watched that match last night as well, Chris, and I seen that the bit where Cornette busted his legs, and it was so bad. I mean, he's he's hanging on at the bottom of the scaffold for like a few seconds, and just drops, and he tries to obviously land on. His, drops like a stone, doesn't he? Oh, he does, and he tries to land on his feet, and he just, <laughs> you just imagine he gets just exploding in that sort of thing. Uh, Scott, one of the things that, that that Chris also said, which is quite important, that you know. The LOD are the sort of tag team who don't need to have a belt. Um, do, you, do you agree with that? I think it works for some people. Uh, I think there needs to be a point if you're chasing the title for a certain amount of time or you're in a period where you're currently fighting the, the, the current champions, then eventually, yeah, you need to win the belts. Otherwise, it's a hard to get invested in that feud. And it would have a similar thing when they come back to WF, which we'll talk about later. But What's interesting also about the, the run that you said like they got back together in WCW in 96, uh, that was, it was the first time they'd been a team since uh, since SummerSlam 92 because after that Animal got his back injury and uh, they had a bit of a falling out when Hawk went over to Japan with Kensuke Sasaki who became Power Warrior, uh, which sounds like a bloody anime character 
and did a version of the LOD, and then they keep finally came back together. And something we actually haven't talked about, we keep saying like, oh, they got a big reaction, they're really over this period. Something we haven't talked about is they got even got their own term in wrestling, the, the Road Warrior Pop, which, like, you know, a character tag team is over when you have like, your own pop named after you. Like, Stone Gold, he's even said, like, even though he's got some of the loudest reactions of like anybody, like, during the attitude era, even he said, I don't think I ever came close to a Road Warrior Pop. That's a good one. Gary, were you surprised at how short a, how short a stint they had in WCW? Yeah, I mean, there's a... One of the highlights of this WCW run, when I look back on it, was the blue version of the LOD, where they had blue uh, stripes in their tights and blue shoulder pads. You know, they were trying to like freshen up the look a wee bit. It, it was interesting, um, to say the least. But yeah, I mean, what what it was, and there's a wee bit of he said, she said to this story, you know, LOD essentially wanted this deal, didn't they, where they could do uh, New Japan and WCW at the same time. So they were trying to get a deal with both of them. And I think at the time, WCW had a relationship which, you know, would allow them their talent to go and work in Japan under their terms and they would do their own shows. So LOD were essentially wanting to have their cake and eat it, I think, and they claim that Eric Bischoff agreed to it. Eric Bischoff denies that story, and the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, as it often is with these things. But again, this is leading up to LOD leaving another company because they've had a disagreement with management as well. Yeah, Stephen, some some good feuds that they had there, like Chris mentioned, you know. Um, we're talking about WCW title, they had against uh, Sting and Luger, and, and they also had um, they had the, the Steiners as well, who were an up and coming tag team at that time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some, there were some cracking names in there. Say, I think they had briefly a match with Harlem Heat as well. Yeah. Harlem Heat, I think, were in the middle of there. Yeah. I can't remember exactly what point they were tag champs at that point, but they were majorly over that point. So, I mean, it's a, it's a he, sh- he, he said, she said type idea of names, you know, and if they'd stayed in WCW a wee bit longer, they could have had some fantastic matches. The outsiders were just coming in, as Chris mentioned, the NWO stuff was there. There was loads of potential in that one, but it just, uh, obviously, they wanted some cash, you know, and for all the good we say about the, old, uh, the Road Warriors for out this time, they seem to be really demanding appearing, I think it's fair to say, as good as they were in the ring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Chris... Um, like I said, Gary, you know, just a few words to describe their 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 WCW here that you mentioned there. How to sum it up in a few words? I think that WCW and the Road Warriors were trying to capitalise on the Road Warriors' earlier success, and I think at this point it was still working to an extent. But the the issue that they had in Nix was that they were the old school type of wrestling NWO was very much the new school so I think that when this happened I think they could sort of see the writing on the wall that's why they wanted to go to Japan but you know where it's much more about just the the wrestling and the look as opposed to the the promo and you know the television side of things which was coming into it in WCW at the time so they were sort of out of luck when this all happened and when wrestling changed forever in 1996 so it's difficult, but I think that I do still remember this fondly, much like we remember the WWF run fondly. Definitely, definitely. So thanks for that, Chris. 
next one we're going to go into is Stevie Boy. Stevie, you want to tell us what you're talking about? Sure, so I'm going to be talking about the well, the first year back that they had in the WWF, WWE now from 97 to early 98 before the, you know, the the third man type thing came in with uh, about a year or so later. So essentially, after the running, the brief run in WCW, as Chris mentioned, they resurfaced in the WWF in early 1997 after they took some independent bookings in Japan and US throughout that time and re-debuted in the company in February 97 destroying the headbangers even though uh, the match never went to a finish but they pretty much took the two of them out and that's re-solidified their place back in the company they would then be thrust quite immediately into many of you who watch this will know the never ending feud between Ahmed Johnson and the nation of domination. I mean, I swear to God, this thing went on for decades, let alone <laughs> months. But uh, essentially, Ahmed Johnson brought them in, claiming them to be some sort of gang fighters, which, if you see the LOD work for their career, they were stiff. So gang fighters is quite an appropriate word to say. <laughs> and what we got from that one was the Chicago street fight of WrestleMania 13 between... Day three and Farouk Crush and Savio Vega of the Nation of Domination. Now, anybody who remembers this match will know it was put in a hellacious spot on the card. They had to follow Bret Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin. That classic match which had the double turn and the uh, pretty much Austin not giving up type finish. That was a horrendous spot to be in, but this match was absolutely chaotic. I I, I look quite fondly back on. I love the Austin match. But I also really like this match. It's just so chaotic. We, Gary mentioned the Pritchard uh, podcast. Well, I believe it was on a Pritchard podcast as well. Was it a Pritchard podcast? They talked about this match. And Pritchard says it's absolutely pretty much... They're meant to be these the spots with the fire extinguisher. And I think Animal's meant to have a gimmicked fire extinguisher. But instead of using a gimmick one, he uses a proper fire extinguisher. And fr- I throws it into what I believe what I remember was Crush. <laughs> I'm sure Pritchard says pretty much everything that could go wrong in this match goes wrong. But it's chaotic, it's fun. If you've never watched this match back, it is just absolute. I think it goes on for about six. Is it about six minutes or something? No, it goes on for ten minutes. But it felt like it feels like an absolute flash in the pan. But no, it's a great match and it does end up with the nation, the, sorry, the Legion of Doom and Ahmed Johnson picking up the win I mean, I, I believe Ahmed Johnson immediately goes back into a feud with the nation but enough about that uh, <laughs> about this, one thing I remember this match is, is Ahmed Johnson was wearing the LOD gear wasn't he? he had on the, the shoulder pads I forgot about that, that. Well. ah yeah great that's an uh, inspiration to what Scott will talk about later on in the pod uh, <laughs> but, uh, they then for the next couple of pay-per-views and the in-your-house pay-per-views they seem to be constantly have a couple of matches with the tag team champions at that point which was Owen Hart and the British Bulldog which were quite flat in a, in a way I mean the, the, on the pay-per-view after that it's a, it's a DQ finish to the title match with uh, LOD coming out on top but not winning the titles the one after that they actually fight in the dark match you know so it doesn't even get on the main card but what it ends up is they do end up really embroiled in a feud with the, the, the U Heart Foundation at this time, which is just after Brett's heel turns we mentioned at WrestleMania 13. We've got Jim Neidhart and obviously the tag champions all on the one page at this particular point. Brian Pillman's even in there as well. And they 
take part in a six-man tag as well where they team up with Psycho Sid and what I believe is one of Sid's final matches in his WWE run uh, against the Heart Foundation at that particular point in time but what it then leads into the next pay-per-view is what many people still to this day class as the best 10-man tag team match in wrestling history someone argues to me about a better 10-man tag team match you know I'll argue it all day it's the Heart Foundation in Canada at Canadian Stampede in your house I mean if you talk about uh, LOD Pops as Scott mentioned the bombing Heart Foundation pop in Canada oh it was unbelievable and they took on the team of the Legion of Doom Stone Cold Steve Austin Goldust and who was the other one again <laughs> I can't remember I had, it, I had it written down I can't seem to find it in my notes <laughs> that, was it. that was it Stephen that's the five Stone Cold yeah. Goldust Oh, Ken Shamrock as well, sorry. Ken Shamrock, that was the other one. I didn't have a... So they took that, that 10-man tag team match, which was that memorable, I completely forgot one of the guy's names. Uh, Dave Meltzer named this paper... Dave Meltzer named this pay-per-view the best pay-per-view in 1997, which comes to show, you know, the LOD are in a match here, but there's still an afterthought, you know, because, you know, you've got the Heart Foundation well embroiled in a feud with Stone Cold Steve Austin, you've got the charisma of Goldust, and you have... Ken Shamrock, who, let's be honest, could kill a man with his bare hands. Uh, a fantastic match. It's, it's the back and forwards, man. It's all about the crowd, I think, in this match, though. I think it's fair to say, because Stone Cold Steve Austin's at the height of his popularity and he gets booed out the building, you know. LOD, one of the most popular tag teams in the world we've ever seen in wrestling, booed out the building, you know. It's absolutely mental, but it's a fantastic match. The Heart Foundation win it, you know. There's a botched pile driver on Stone Cold no not that the botch pile driver comes after it there's a botch with everything on it you know it's just it's fantastic you know it's brilliant and LOD aren't even a big part of it which kind of sums up this run I think of WWE they kind of feel like an afterthought in a way they kind of they end up in constant matches for the tag team titles in the months after this one I mean I think they have about three if I remember counting rightly about three pay-per-view matches involving the Godwins I mean come on the bloody Godwins you know I mean, one of the Godwins is more famous for being a tag team partner with Gary's favourite wrestler, whose name I'm not going to mention, but hey-ho, he gets a mention in this podcast, as always. <laughs> uh, one particular match for the vacant tag team title matches that they lose is an elimination tag team match with the Godwins, Owen Hart and the Bulldog, and the Headbangers. You know, it just shows that we're in late 1997 and they're not winning this tag team titles, even though, let's be brutally honest, the tag division at this point in time was pre-U-Age it was wasn't great in WWF so I think it was maybe a case from my watching that Vince had these guys back and he was great but again he didn't know how, what to do with them and I think he was still a bit bitter about what happened in 92 which just shows because they did they, over this time there is absolutely nothing outside of that one they do become tag team champions for the second time in October uh, of that year where they do defeat the Godwins but they only hold the titles for a month or so where they lose to the yearly formed UAG Outlaws and I'll be honest with you, they did have some decent matches in this time with the Outlaws you know but the Outlaws get one up on them all the time it leads to Road Warrior Hawk getting his head shaved at one point in time as well in one of the very early beatdowns from a, an early DX in the UAG Outlaws when it kind of teased the aspects of this team forming but we get to about February of that year and it looks like they've won the tag titles again and we kind of have a bit of hope to it but 
it turns out that they hit the doomsday device and it looks like they're about to win, but the ref's distracted by a celebration from Hawk, a premature celebration from Hawk, which leads to the outlaws taking advantage of winning the titles. And we get some sort of dissension between the two that kind of just leads to absolutely nothing. And one year on from them returning as these gang fighters, they're pretty much been, you know, absolutely nothing. And we think they'll disbanded for good until a couple of months later where we get the formation of LOD 2000 that Scott will talk about. But one year on, and the only real highlights I can pick out is a match that has a botched fire extinguisher moment and a match where they get absolutely booed out the building. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a different time, you know, the, the, the Gary and Chris, you know, some of the guys that you mentioned that they were wrestling against was just Stella Lina, whereas Mike Stevens, you know, the spectrum, but they're wrestling the Godwins for the tag title. It's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, not, not a come down, but just a different era in terms of tag team wrestling, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, like there's there's just not like what Stephen said there. There's just not the star power that he had in the previous years. Like when you're going from fighting teams like Demolition, teams like the Four Horsemen, the Midnight Express, all these names that you can remember off the top of your head in a second. I think that they wanted to bring them back in what this period, like ninety six, ninety seven. But they wanted to bring them back to improve a division which was pretty poor so it was difficult for them to feud with anyone I think it ends up that they ended up being fed to the outlaws to help boost their careers and it's just a shame that this is how it turned out what they maybe should have done I, I, I don't know how I quite would have booked to myself but like they maybe should have had them in some sort of feud with some of the higher up uh, wrestlers teaming off together or something like that because they they were struggling around this time I've seen matches from this period of time and it, it's, it's difficult it's a difficult watch there's basically as Stephen said there's nothing to really lay your hat on from this one year that they were in the company to put it in perspective yeah, yeah. The, the, eliminate, the elimination match they had that one I mentioned they were the first team out getting knocked out by DQ and there was also a pay-per-view they were on the Bad Blood one the one with the Hell in a Cell with Michaels and Undertaker and Essentially, they go in first, but they get completely overshadowed because that's the right, be right before the match. Jr. announces that Brian Pillman died, like the day before, like the night before. So they pretty much he's announced that, and they have to go on and have this match. It's like they put them in some unbelievably bad positions in that year. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. So Scott, um, the thing about um, LOD was when they were when they were coming out, though they had this huge, incredible pop most of the time. However, in Canadian Stampede, it was almost like a role reversal. What was your memories of the Canadian Stampede match? Yeah, the Canadian Stampede match, I mean, I sometimes just watch it just for the entrances alone because of the, the reaction. And it's really like the LOD and, and Austin, like being so over in the States, they aren't doing, they aren't deviating from what they usually do. They're doing what they usually do. It's just it doesn't matter what they do in Canada, the hearts are just going to get cheered. and. It does feel like that going in 87 and then more so in the 80s, we'll cover it a bit, they were kind of being used to put over other teams kind of the cost of their own kind of like credibility or something like that. Like they just keep putting people over. The more they lost, the less people cared about them. And then notably yeah. the feud with the Godwins is that showcased the, the dangers of the Doomsday device because Henry Godwin takes the Doomsday out of the landing wrong and he comes back too soon and then that would lead to the end of his career. Uh, 
and then obviously the LD finally got the tag tails back, got, got another reign after all this time, and then just got used to put over the, the news it was time and time again. Yeah. yeah. Danny, what do you remember about the, the feud with the New Age Outlaws and what happened there? It was very much a case of them getting put the LD putting them over, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, this period and this feud, I think, it strikes me as the, the WWF they just didn't know what to do with the Legion of Doom. And they were getting older, and Chris made a really good point uh, about the sort of passing of the times. I know you didn't say that specifically, Chris, when you were sort of talking about the birth of the NWO and WCW, but they looked a wee bit out of place in this era, and they were just... I think they, they were made to look foolish by the the New Age Outlaws, which I didn't have a problem with if they got a comeback, but they never really got the upper hand on the Outlaws at any time. And I think when Hawk and Animal um, came to blows with each other in um, February 98, um, you know, the crowd just didn't care. I remember Michael Cole saying in commentary, the crowd is stunned that, no, the, the crowd just didn't give a fuck. At that point, I was really sad end you know you know sad state of affairs the team had got into at that point it looked like they were splitting up and yeah nobody cared yeah so stevie back to you sort of you want to describe this era in lod's history <sighs> extremely underwhelming it's something that could have started off great with the whole chicago uh, street fight you could have put them into gave them the tag belts early on and they could have done something with it but no underwhelming didn't have a clue how to book them and I think it's a, it's a year that's maybe a stain on their legacy a wee bit yeah yeah, yeah good way a good way to put it so thanks for that Stevie Scotty we've left you with the best one mate you want to talk about yeah you want to talk about stains on legacies here here we go LOD 2000 <laughs> So, as you said, they've lost four separate occasions. They've lost to the New Age Outlaws. And they looked at this. They had that match on the 23rd of February. They teased like they're going to break up. And then they're kind of just gone from TV after that. And then WrestleMania, they're not advertised for the show. And then they have the big tag team battle royal. Pretty much every team's in the ring. And they're one of the only teams that get an entrance. And even though they've only been gone a month of pop from them coming out, they come out with Sunny. They've got these new kind of silverish like pads, they've got these weird like motorcycle like helmets trying to look some sort of futuristic and also they're called LOD 2000 the, uh, the pairing with Sunny I think from what I've heard is more so about getting her on TV because she was having a lot of issues with Sable and upset that Sable was overshadowing her uh, and so she got put with them even though she her with them didn't really make any sense uh, what people really don't remember this Battle Royal because we remember them winning it and also their entrance. They last eliminated Bombastic Bar and Bodacious Bob of the new Midnight Express because in the 98 everything had to be either new or have the word 2000 in it to make it cool. <laughs> and so they earned the title shot one more time against the New Age Outlaws uh, at Unforgiven in Your House the following month. And this, despite the fact that it's got a terrible finish, which I'll get into in a second, it still manages to be probably from what I watched their best match of this uh, run they have the match, they're in North Carolina so despite being the actual down the outlaws are starting to get over the fans are still really behind the uh, 
LOD, they want to see them killed out. Well, they, they're quite dominant for the most part, except when they go for the doomsday device. Uh, really good, I think it chops out Animal's leg, and then that gets worked over, and they build to the hot tag. JR, I kept noting down, you kept calling it, oh, they're setting up for the devastation device. Like, it's called the doomsday device, JR. I thought you, of all people, would know that. But but then, like, they do a spot, like, Hawk gets hit with a, a tie title belt, but he still kicks out. They go for it again. Do the classic, oh, the heel's going to cheat, but it backfires, and you think, this is it, this is going to be the moment where they win the titles. Hawk does a bridge in German. But in fact, he clearly see his shoulder is up, and both the road dog's shoulders are down. They try to do the, oh, the guy doing the pin, his shoulders are actually down. And so, New Age Outlaws retain the tag titles, which the decision which gets booed out of the building, and then the poor referee takes a doomsday device for his troubles. And this is pretty much the beginning of the end for LOD immediately they have a few more title shots, they have a three-way uh, on the June 8th Raw with New Age Outlaws and DOA and a match that saw the uh, the inclusion of the Outlaw rule where uh, both members of New Age Outlaws got tied in and so they retained by one of them pinning the other and so that led to a rule that you can't fight your own partner in a multiple man tag match and so Sunny leaves because she's having a lot of personal issues and the heat with her and Sable and apparently she wasn't showing up to some events so eventually she gets released from the company they bring in the third man draws to help them in their DOA feud uh, ironically like I said about mentioning like, the idea of them going up against Demolition who had a third man and now they're fighting a stable started by Crush and they need a third man to help even the odds and then eventually thought no to help let's bring back Paul Ellering who immediately turns on them and sides with the DOA and at least to a moment where he's on some comedy for, during a DOA match and cuts the infamous Mr.com promo where he says that the Skull and 8-Ball are twins I only need to program one mind to control them and he keeps going on about the age of the internet for no reason <laughs> and DOA beat them at fully low to 98 because they performed twin magic because they're twins so the Bella twins clearly took inspiration from Skull and 8-Ball I'm telling you now uh, and then immediately the night after fully loaded that's where out of nowhere they begin the Hawk is a drunk storyline where Hawk comes out stumbling without any like preface or warning he just starts acting drunk there's even moments where he goes for the Doomsday Vice but falls off the top rope which I think is maybe a reference to SummerSlam 92 where he was kind of out of it going into the match and they didn't want to do the Doomsday Device for fear that something would go wrong uh, they kept, that's where draws came in they kept having draws fill in for him and they said and Hawk basically started getting in the LOD's way they did get a win over Skull, 8-Ball and Paul Elling in a 6-man uh, in your house judgement day but eventually this leads to the, the Titan Tron moment I think the moment a lot of people remember from the storyline where draws goes up to help uh, Hawk but clearly pushes him off of the Titan Tron and then they have a moment where it's weird because like the whole point of the draws is revealed to be enabling Hawk and forcing causing him to relive his addiction so he can take his place. But then a week later at Capital Carnage, uh, Hawk and Draws lose to the headbangers and then break up. They start fighting each other. It's like so Hawk at, so Animal and Draws don't do anything noteworthy together. Like they didn't even get a shot at the tag titles. Nothing that Draws could use is to say like, look, I'm a better partner for you than Hawk as he's unreliable because. Animal was clearly starting to take Draws' side over Hawks in the storyline. And then it's paid off by 
Animal Hulk shows up, by the way. He fell off the Titantron. He should have every bone in his body broken. He comes out, bit of makeup over his face and an arm cast. That's how apparently tough Hulk is. That's the only injuries he sustained after falling off the Titantron. And they basically reveal, yeah, it was draw us all or he was enabling me. Animal and Hawk beat him up and then they leave. Because apparently like Animal especially was trying to say to Hawk, like, you shouldn't do this the way that's too close to home. You're still not over your your issues. But Hawk had a bit of issues with Vince because I think Vince was angry with Hawk being unreliable because of these issues and Hawk thought if I go along with the storyline maybe it'll put me back in Vince's good books. But I think we all know as history showing it was a very bad idea. Yeah, yeah, this this either leaves a really bad taste in my mouth in terms of yeah. everything that they everything that they done. Um the storyline with, with Hawk drinking is just horrible as far as I'm concerned, Gary. What do you think about about that storyline? And as far as that storyline, I um, I didn't like it either. I have to say I think Hawk played the part exceptionally well. Uh, minus the Titantron part I, th- um, I thought he played it exceptionally well I think the story overall though, what it did do was diminish the standing of Legion of Doom and I don't think when they entered into the story there was ever a plan for how you come out the other side of it and how you res- you know if the team's going to go down that way well, what's the plan to then send them back up that yeah. way and clearly there wasn't more well, if there was one, we never seen it executed, because as Scott touched on there, I mean, the reaction to the falling off the Titantron bit was so bad that they just quickly dropped the angle um, and tried to move on from it. But the, I'm afraid the the damage, the damage was um, was done then, and yeah, it was it was just very poor, very poor. Yeah, yeah. Stephen, it seems like it was a bit of a a role reversal for LOD. Like you mentioned in years when they were put over the New Age Outlaw, now you know they were there to sort of put over Sonny as well. Did you see that sort of happening? You know, like a sort of role reversal with them putting guys over? Uh, yeah, in a wee bit, yeah. I mean, it was it's hard because it wasn't like my era, there wasn't a lot of meat to the bones in terms of what was there. Uh, Sonny stuff never worked for me. It just seemed like an odd fit. I mean, it's they didn't seem to be this group that had suited having a valet of Sonny standing. You know, Erling made sense because they were kind of like he was the he was kind of conniving in a way at times. The point and he was just like a an extra hard man. He was like a wee hard man at times. Erling, I think as well. Uh, we mentioned that scaffolding match, especially chasing Jim Cornette all the way up. That's sick, sickle, sickle. But you know, I don't think it helped as well when the plan was to uh, put the two of them in a feud that the two of them were not invested in it I mean apparently the two of them found it hard to cut promos on each other like yeah. they slating each other you know so if you don't have that I mean what's the point you know it's kind of that tag team forever type aspect of it um, nah nothing just I felt sorry for Draws a wee bit because Draws at this point looked like he could have been a, a talent I mean obviously he had the issue where he got that really bad injury a couple of years after it but he could have they could have put him somewhere I mean the next year they gave him a decent spot in the in the rumble in the 99 you know but nah it's just like nothing worked nothing clicked and it's as Gary said it's kind of diminished them a wee bit in their, histo- uh, their legacy yeah Road Warrior Chris what did you make of Draw has been introduced 
Yeah, like, <laughs> I can see what they were doing. They were trying to do what had happened with Demolition years before, as we mentioned, and I just think as well, like, this storyline with the booze and the, the falling off the Titantron. I actually remember reading about the Titantron in instant if you've had this when you were younger but there was a, a 100 greatest moments in raw history wwf magazine that must have came out in like i don't know 2001 2000 between 2001 2005 somewhere around then i remember reading they were like wait hang on he fell off the titantron like normally when they do these spots like with shane mcmahon or the hardies and stuff like that like you see it it's like it ends in a in a table or a nicely padded surface, something like that. But with this, does he not just like, is he not just on the the concrete somewhere when you see him? And I'm like, okay, that's a dead man. <laughs> uh, and then as you say, he comes back two minutes later and um, he's fine the following week with like a cast. I thought it was, I think they've, they've done it with the Road Warriors. They did it with Scott Hall and WCW as well. It's just such a like heinous storyline, like, what is the outcome of this? Does he get better at the end? Like, how how do you work this storyline to an end on television? You can't really. It's just it's just cheap cheap pops, cheap ratings, um, and and just a really really bad end to this run of one of the best yeah. tag teams ever. Yep, yep, one hundred percent. So shall I leave the last last words to you yeah. on this um, last few words that I said on this um, era of LOD's history. <laughs> Uh, a few words I can say is a uh, lot of mistakes uh, were made. Uh, I think at the first they were yeah they were trying to revamp them, make them a bit more modern. It's just something that made them slightly cool to this like new era they were going into. But like the whole thing of LOD was like they were just big guys with face paint who beat people up and like why they couldn't just let them be that. Because at the same time you've got Kane and Undertaker throwing lightning and fire at each other. How that's okay, but you need to change LOD. And yeah, I think obviously the it's assuming that a lot of fans may only know them for this this draws and the Titan Tron assuming yeah, the end angle he said Chris like, Oh what how does it happen? Does he get better then? Because I think at the end he does say, oh, I'm clean now and draws was behind all this, but like in real life he wasn't clean. Like a year later as they say they say in Ducks of the Ring that a year later they're in Australia doing a tour and Hawk nearly dies. Like that's how bad things got. So he clearly that wasn't okay. And yeah, so the storyline hits a lot too close to home. Yeah, yeah, definitely does, definitely does. And then, um, just on a sort of final bit of it, you know, we're just going to have a chat about, you know, obviously that's a sort of either done with wrestling. You know, Hawk passes away in two thousand and three, age forty six, um, from a heart attack. Um, and just before that, they sort of managed to both of them managed to clean themselves up through the help of Ted DiBiase, and they became born again Christians. Um, but unfortunately Hawk passed away and then Animal passed away in September of last year as well get age 60 from from a heart attack as well which is a horrible horrible situation but they managed to turn you know obviously the lights around from the alcohol and drug use that they had which was which was one thing but guys they're also um, 2011 Hall of Fame inductees as well um, as well definitely in my opinion definitely deserve to be that so um, do you guys, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, do you guys think that LOD are the best tag team that we've ever had in wrestling history? Chris, I'll start with you now. 
I think that um, it's an interesting debate. I think that it's like trying to argue that Hulk Hogan is the best wrestler ever. It's like, yeah, they might not have the best wrestling acumen, might not be the you know most technical, but they credited tag team wrestling with so much. Like you said at the start, like the introduction of like becoming sort of superstars almost the 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 ring gear the entrance music like the the uh, tag team maneuvers and stuff i think they did so much for tag team wrestling i think that if i was to look back on all the wrestling that i've watched they might not be the best wrestling tag team that i've ever seen but i think that if you were to pick one team that epitomized tag team wrestling it's definitely them good one gary go to you next um, I would say no to the best tag team ever, but I would say yes to one of the most impactful tag teams. I do think they changed tag team wrestling and their impact on the business was pretty pretty phenomenal. They were credible main eventers and there's not many tag teams that you can say that about. Yeah, yeah Scott? Uh, no to them being the, the best tag team of all time. They are definitely one of the most decorated tag teams and they definitely should be on your kind of list when you're listening to the greatest tag teams all time. I personally wouldn't put them at number one and I just say I would agree with Gary that they were like main eventers and like they even got like occasional shots at the world title but still remained a team. They were the exception to the idea of a tag team eventually has to break up, somebody has to turn on the other, someone has to be the Marty Sean kind of thing, someone has to go on and be a main eventer. Don't bring up Marty Sean please. I'm Still try to go over it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I know, Stephen, I know the ones I haven't told yet. <laughs> Stephen, what about you? Uh, I think the guys have made some fantastic points on that one. I think in terms of pure wrestling ability, I don't think they're the best tag team in it. I think we've seen a lot more decorated tag teams currently, and even in that day and age as well. I mean, you get the likes of you mentioned that you know, the brain, the, the, dem- the demolition, but they were around about the same time as the Brainbusters. Tully Blanchard and Arm Anderson, what a fantastic tag team they were. Uh, yeah. Don't know how many matches they had with the Legion of Doom, but they could have been excellent. But I think the impact and how decorated they were as a tag team, they're definitely up there. I mean, as Gary's mentioned and I mentioned earlier on, not mentioned, no many tag teams can be seen as a main event level player. And I think the fact that to this day, anytime a tag team, one and a half a tag team gets another a wrestler on their shoulders and the other one goes to the top rope. Every single fan, every single commentator knows exactly what they're going for. Doomsday device, you know. It's just the fact of that aspect of it means that they're just they're solidified as one of the most popular, decorated and memorable tag teams, especially the runs that Chris and Gary mentioned. I think if we took away the, the runs that me, me and Scott talked about, there would definitely be there wouldn't be too much of an argument, but the yeah. eighty six to ninety two run is absolutely amazing, you know. And those war game matches Chris watched are absolutely brilliant, the pops that we're getting. Yeah. Yeah, you two guys got a bit of a raw deal there, so sorry about that, you <laughs> got it. <laughs> and Gary and Chris got the got the good side of the argument there. So <laughs> but in terms of in terms of my opinion towards the LD, I think they're one of the best tag teams out there. Like you guys mentioned, they were something they were something different and you know we didn't need to have to like I said as well it was quite I thought it was quite important they're sort of a bit like a sort of Roddy Piper where they didn't need to have a belt in order to in order to be a successful successful thing um, I just 
I loved them. I thought they were fantastic. But I do agree with you in terms of what you are what you are saying. Like they're they're definitely up there. Who is the best tag team? I think that's maybe another discussion that we could have for another day. But yeah, it's, a, it's an important one out there into the history of um, Hawk and Animal and just how how good they were and just how different they were for their time as well. I guess um, you know they've done a lot of things for the for the industry, like I mentioned at the start. You know, in terms of bringing in movie. Um, attire into their into their um, into their work as well, and they were just sort of above it. It's a shame, you know, that they're, they're not here. Definitely worthy of their home fame inductees. I definitely think so um, as well. So yeah, I think that's pretty much a good place to sort of stop there in terms of the history of LOD. Um, we just before I finish, we will be back next week. I believe that Stephen is discussing NXT. Mount Rushmore, is that right, Steve? Yeah, NXT, Mount Rushmore. You know, we're about 10 years into NXT's current incarnation. Plenty of great wrestlers in there, you know. Plenty of not so great wrestlers. No, he, no way Jose may get on it. Who knows, you know? <laughs> if anybody picks Lars Sullivan, they're getting kicked off the stream. But otherwise, should be a good show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, very much looking forward to doing that one. So just before we finish, I'd like to say thank you. Thank you, Scotty. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers, Chris. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having us, guys. No worries. Cheers, Stevie. Thanks, Derek. Cheers, and thanks, Gary. Thank you. It's been great fun to have uh, delve back into our childhood, Derek, and talk about it. Yes, very much so. Very much so. I've really enjoyed it, guys, and we'll be back next week to discuss more wrestling. Until then, we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Scott McLeod. And I'm Grant McGrobby. We are the hosts of the monthly show on Eats the Suplex Retreat East Meets West. Where we'll bring you all the latest happenings, reviews and big events from New Japan and the land of the Far East. You can remember to check that out on the Eats the Suplex Retreat podcast feed on all good Android podcasting sites like Anchor, Spotify or iTunes now.